You are now tuned into a weekend edition of Nitty Gritty Sports Talk Radio. I go by the name of Roscoe English. And of course, I'm here with the flock. Got my guy Keys with me. My guy Nick. What's going on, fam? And of course, Keith PJ. What's going on, man? We got a, got a great one today. So as we wrap up Terp Week, we end off with a legend. Former Maryland Turpin legend, current EuroLeague superstar, James Gist. James, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, man. Appreciate it. Thank no you for having me on the show today. No problem. We glad to have you. How's everybody doing on your end during the pandemic to start off? Everybody's doing good, man. We're just doing our best to stay low and stay out of the way. Um, but most of all, you know, we're good, you know. It gives us time to just be at home, be around each other, especially during the time right now where I will be in season. I'm actually at home now, so I get to spend a lot more time with the family, so that's good. Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. Well, let's get straight to the interview. So you attended Good Council for high school. Talk to us about your time there. Um, It was an experience, man, you know, because I grew up in Washington, D.C., and so going to D.C. public middle school and then transitioning going to a private high school in Montgomery County, even Maryland was like, you know, night and day. It was a huge transition for me to get used to academically and, you know, sports-wise. I mean, I was there because of sports, so, I mean, I was able to do that. But the academics was probably the biggest adjustment for me going to good counsel. Just, you know, what they expected of their students. You know, they, they, they graduated a lot of their students and stuff like that. And, you know, D.C. public schools weren't known, at least the public school system wasn't known as the best public school system in America back when I was coming out of high school. I don't know about so much now, but, you know, in 2000 and maybe even a little a few years before that, high school system was really bad. Public system was really bad as far as graduating. So I didn't really go there prepared as much as that for the academics part. But, you know, as my freshman year, things picked up academically, which I needed to have that in order to play um, on the teams. Um, but it was it was an experience. I got to travel. Man, I got to play at a high level. I guess a lot of guys coming up, you know, 2000, 2004, the high school class coming out during that time was amazing, especially in this area and, I mean, all around the country. You know, those guys that are playing NBA now, I played against those guys in high school. So, you know, that was just something huge. Good counsel gave me a huge opportunity to be able to play at a high level and get the exposure I needed to go to college. For dope, sure. Dope. So you've, you kind of touched on it. Uh, bring up some of your toughest checks while uh, at Good Council and some of those players that you were just uh, referencing. Um, toughest checks while I was at Good Council. You know, we always had the battle, good counsel, the math. The math was one of the top areas. Um, Gonzaga and Part of Six were always, you know, heavy, um, heavy, heavy games when we played. Uh, but checks, I probably said there was a dude named uh, Dwayne Anderson played at St. John's uh, in D.C. and uh, he was, you know, high level man, top level. He ended up getting hurt senior year coming out when he had a really good opportunity, you know, to put his name out there and get high recognition. Um, and so that kind of held him back, you know, from being able to take off out of the area. But that was probably one of the toughest checks. You know, Brian Johnson at O'Connell and Freddie Stanback, you know, those guys uh, trying to think high school. Yeah, high school was back in the day, you feel me? So it's like those dudes back then, I mean, Boo Jackson was at Carroll. You know, you had, you had guy, Darian Towns was a big man at Carroll at that time. Uh, Rob Little was at Paul the Six. Travis Garrison was at DeMatha. You know, they had, you had, you had teams. You had teams, and that was night in and night out uh, every game. 
every game, especially WCAC. I mean, the holiday tournaments when we got to play Bullets or travel Fort Lauderdale or New York, you know, I got a chance to go up against uh, Kendrick Perkins and uh, J.R. Smith at Slam Dunk to the Beach in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, when we were in high school. Uh, we had a tournament down in Fort Lauderdale where we played, um, where National Christian was down there and they had Patrick Ewing Jr. and those guys, you know. So, I mean, we had matchups. And, I mean, just this area with basketball in general is huge, you know. You know how it is. So, James, you were a team captain at Gate Council, and uh, we believe you're the all-time leader in blocked shots. So you left your mark on that school forever. How's that feel, and what was your most memorable moment while at Gate Council? Uh, I mean, it feels good. You know, looking back at the years, you know, that have gone by, you know, the time that I spent at Gate Council, and, you know, just growing up as a kid, you know, coming out of D.C. with not much expectation to do anything or go anywhere, you know, as a young black man. Uh, it was, you know, looking back, you know, it was just – Something that I really appreciate, you know, going through those years of good counsel. Um, it, it, it gave me a lot. It gave me a lot of, uh, to build on and, and heading into college and heading to the next phase. Um, I don't really have much else, though, as far as it goes for good counsel, though. Sorry. Definitely. Hey, James, so talk to us about your decision to attend Maryland and other offers you had. So attend Maryland? Um, my last five colleges that I had was Maryland, uh, Virginia, Providence University, Kentucky, and Georgetown. And I mean, eventually I, I made my decision to go to Maryland. Uh, that was based off of Roger Mason helped me make that decision. Um, but, uh, you know, it was tough. My dad, he was military. Um, during this process of my junior year in high school, he wasn't here because he was out after 9-11 had happened. He had to serve and, and take his, you know, his work overseas for a year. So he missed my whole, um, you know, college process, recruitment process and picking. So it was just me and my moms, you know, we were going through the process, meeting with college coaches and, you know, not really knowing what to expect, you know, and growing up, you know, I was just a kid playing basketball just to have fun. I wasn't, I didn't know the process of how everything worked, like how to get to college or how to get to the NBA or anything like this. I didn't have that kind of leadership and guidance in my corner. You know, my parents were big on education. They wanted me to go, you know, to make sure that I had uh, education at the end of the day. I was able to graduate, have a diploma so I can get a job. Basketball was there. You know, they were proud of me for being good at basketball and to be able to, you know, choose a school that they could pay for me and give me a scholarship, but they didn't want me to just be a basketball player, you know, so. I was never hip to the things that you had to do going into basketball. So when me and my mom were going to this process, you know, we, it was a first time thing for us. You know, it was just kind of looking at what can we get, you know, from making the best decision out of these schools. You know, what school is going to give me the best uh, road to be successful? You know, where, where am I going to be able to achieve what I want to do academically and also basketball wise? Um, and so with those top five schools, I mean, we had a lot to choose from. I really wanted to go to Kentucky. That was my number one. But at the time, um, Tubby Smith said that they had one uh, scholarship that they want to offer and they wanted to give it to Dwight Howard. Um, and so my thing was Dwight Howard was going straight to the NBA. Everybody knew that coming out of that year, 2004, everybody knew Dwight Howard was going to the NBA. He was going to be number one pick. But Kentucky looked at it as if, you know, we got a chance to get him. You know, why not at least throw the offer? And so, you know, I mean, I understand it from their point of view, but from my point of view, I'm a kid trying to pick a college that's, you know, going to cater to me and I'm supposed to be playing for them. So I'm thinking if I'm number one on your list, you're going to offer me. If, if I'm not number one on your list, then you don't really want me. So it kind of went out uh, the window to go to Kentucky. Um, Georgetown, you know, interesting story about there. Greg Estrick was the coach there. This was before John Thompson had got there. Um, 
and uh, we went in, sat down. We had actually went to a game earlier in the week, and um, we came in, sat down with him and the assistant coaching staff, and they were talking to us. And we ended up leaving that meeting early, man, because the coach had told us that, you know, or was explained to me that, you know, I couldn't have cornrows. I couldn't uh, wear a headband. And it was like, That's wait, crazy. you know, uh, we in D.C. for one. We in D.C. Yeah, exactly. We in D.C. You, you know, you got black men on this team. Yeah, you got black men on this team uh, that are represented. And I mean, everybody, you know, they, the education and the people that graduate from Georgetown, I mean, the level was high. But to sit there and... In Washington, D.C., tell a young black man who's looking to come to your school that they can't have braids, that they can't have something that is part of their culture, their heritage, something like that. For me, you know, I was raised to believe that you got to be proud of yourself, be proud of your culture, be proud of these things. And so when that happened, I told my mom immediately, and this is like within the first 10 minutes of the interview or, you know, of a sitting down, I was like, Mom, I think we could leave. You know, I don't think this is where I want to go. And so we ended up cutting that, you know, we cut that meeting short. And after that year, he ended up leaving. JT3 came in. You know, Georgetown made they run with Jeff Green and those guys to go to the Final Four. So, you know, looking back, you know, dang, I could have probably been in Georgetown. It didn't turn out that way. Um, but that was why. Um, and so then it came down to, you know, uh, Virginia, Providence, and Maryland. And those teams, man, they, they, they really put up a good pitch. And I was really close with uh, Roger Mason because he went to good counsel as well, him and Chris Monroe. Roger Mason was a, a huge um, – you know, uh, inspiration to me growing up and going through the process of choosing a college and later on going to the NBA and things like that. He, he's been uh, somebody who's helped me and he helped me make my decision to go to Maryland, you know, and he went to Virginia, had a great career in Virginia. He loved Virginia. You know, yeah, he loved Virginia. You know, he had an amazing career there. You know, and he loved everything about it. But he said, you know, that if he had the opportunity, you know, he would have gave a shot at Maryland. And he told me that if I had the opportunity to go to Maryland, that he thinks that that would be the best fit for me. And so at that, at the end of that, it was just like, you know what, I'm going to try this out. And plus with my dad being gone for a year, my whole junior year of high school, him not being able to see that season. And, you know, I wanted him to be able to still see me play basketball. I wanted my family to be able to come to the game. So that was a huge reason as to why I chose to go to Maryland and stay around home and, and just be here. Because it was just something that, you know, my family could come and see me and support me. My dad would be able to just be here be here and be a part of the whole process that was that was my main issue my main reason and plus they just came off the acc championship and the national championship you know maryland wasn't a bad program gary williams is a hall of fame coach you know what you couldn't go wrong going to maryland so that was why i ended up making the decision okay james you just spoke on gary williams being the hall of fame coach uh, what was your experience playing for him i mean gary williams there's so many things you can say about him man but the one thing that everybody should know is that he's just a great, genuine person. He's a great, genuine person, man. If you get a chance to sit down and talk to him or have any kind of conversations with him outside of basketball, he's genuinely a great guy. And um, that's one thing that I picked up on him really early because, you know, if you don't know him and you only see him through basketball and as a coach, you get a whole different picture and image of Coach Williams. And <laughs> it's funny when you actually sit down with him at a table and you just see a totally complete, calm man. Speaking, you're talking about real life stuff, joking and all this stuff, you know. And uh, so that's one thing that I really took from Gary uh, was his passion, man. His passion that he had once he crossed into them lines on the court. You know, he was a whole different being. He wanted to win at all costs. And, you know, he sacrificed everything, you know, for Maryland to bring them out of, you know, the downtimes that they were in after the whole Lynn Bias thing went down. You know, Gary was a huge uh, part of Maryland's program and bringing them back up. Um, and he just taught me a lot, you know, being coached by a Hall of Fame coach. And I've been coached by a lot of coaches in my career. And you tend to see the difference in the good coaches and the bad coaches. And Gary definitely 
one of the top coaches that I've been coached by, I know why, is just because of the passion that he had, you know, the dedication that he had towards the game. And he was a student of the game, and he taught me to be a student of the game. And that's just one thing that I took from it, being at Maryland, man. For sure. So uh, looking back, you drew two starts as a freshman and then 21 as a sophomore. How was that transition from uh, primarily playing a role to then starting the majority of the games that you played in uh, in your second year? Yeah, that was crazy, you know, because uh, I was the only freshman coming in um, then. Uh, it was supposed to be me and Rudy Gay. Me and Rudy Gay was supposed to go to Maryland, and Rudy ended up signing uh, with UConn. Rudy and son, we UConn. What you mean? That's the that's the. Ooh, my goodness, y'all two. Y'all out Baltimore? Y'all can find that out real easy. I'm just saying. No, I'm just saying. Don't y'all two together? That's a that's lot. what it was supposed to be. That's, that's what it was lot. supposed to be. No, we yeah. know that. But I mean, obviously, you ended up at UConn. But y'all two together? Oh my god. Yeah. We let yeah, too many get be. out of Baltimore. That's my, that was my point. We let too many get out of this area in general, man. In a way, like. KD go to Texas or Ty Lawson go to Carolina or Nolan Smith go to Duke or, you know, like, how do guys from this area leave anyway? Plain and simple, you know? It's just, I, I mean, you know, you could put it against recruiting. You could put it against a lot of different things. Who knows what the answer really is, but, you know, the talent here is, is unmatched. The talent here is unmatched, you know. Um, that That's just what it is, and that's why you have so many greats because – Steel sharp and steel, iron sharp as iron, right? So you got guys that's working out against guys every day, all day around this area. And, I mean, that's why. That's why we have such great uh, talent. For sure, man. We watched Rudy at Spalding, man. That was <laughs> Every game was a spectacle, for sure. Yeah. And like I said, we were supposed to go to Maryland together. And, I mean, I didn't plan on coming into Maryland. Like, one thing y'all got to understand, like, even though y'all saying I'm a legend of the area, a legend of Maryland and stuff like this, I don't wrap my mind around stuff like that, a terminology like that. Because at the end of the day, I really just play basketball to have fun. You know, I didn't understand any of the, you know, the, the antics and the analytics and stuff that go around it. And so all the stats and all the stuff that y'all can read up about me and the highlights and stuff was just me pure just going out there just having a good time. Not understanding what was coming next. You know, when I made all men in the area, all county in the area, I didn't even know. I just got a phone call. It was like, man, you got to come here to this gym. There's going to be some guys there. you are going to take a few pictures for the papers, and then that's it. And I was like, cool, but I didn't know that, the significance of that. I didn't know the significance of getting, you know, the papers to go to the Capitol Classic or getting picked to go uh, train with the USA team and stuff like this. I just thought that was just what happens. You know, you get invited to the Nike camps and stuff like this. I thought that's what would happen when you play basketball. So for me, I didn't go into Maryland thinking like, oh, I'm going to start. It was like, damn, I'm in Maryland. This is dope, you know. And I just ended up going and I guess, you know, what I brought to the team, Gary saw and felt that I could help the team win. And as a freshman coming in to play, you know, start a couple games and then average, you know, 20 minutes. It's, it's as a freshman, there's a team full of juniors and sophomores that just won the ACC tournament the year before, you know, coming in and being able to play like that and, and, and have a – Instant impact, you know, that means that Gary trusted me and whatever I was doing, you know. Uh, I would like to pick his brain one day and, and understand what he thought and what he saw. Because I know once I'm done playing, I want to be a coach one day. So, you know, those are, those are things that I think about. That's cool, man. That's great insight, James. So talk to us about finally getting to participate in March Madness and how was that experience? Uh, that was dope, man. That was dope, especially after missing it the first two years. You know, because we finished, you know, Maryland, we were never a slouch. We were never sorry or anything like that. We always had a, a solid team. And 
at that time, the ACC was so packed with talent and, and, you know, with the wins and losses, everybody was so close. I think one year they took like six teams and then just so happened my freshman year and sophomore year, they only took like four or five teams. And we were always on that edge, whether we were fifth or sixth in the ACC, we were always on that edge and we missed the NCAA tournament right by that on the bubble or whatever. And so my junior year come around and, you know, we ended up um, making a tournament. You know, that run was crazy to even get there because we we was out of there. You know, we had to win maybe the last eight or nine games out yeah. to even be considered that we were going to. Um, yeah, nah, we was off the bubble. Our bubble had popped. <laughs> Our bubble had been popped. And Gary, you know, he got to the point where he was like, man, look, if y'all don't want it, that's cool. I'm a coach. I've been here. I made this legacy. I made everything that's coming here in Maryland. These banners up here, I put them up here. Y'all are just here on scholarship. I got to sign these scholarships, you know, every summer. I got to renew these scholarships. Y'all won't be here next year. I'll be here next year. So, you know, if y'all want to do this, y'all be remembered for being, you know, bad players, terrible players. It's not dedicated to the game. Y'all being assholes, whatever it may be. I don't got to coach y'all. I'm going to be remembered for having a great, you know, career as a coach and all this stuff. Like, he's spitting this at us. So he basically was like, you know, do what y'all want. And so at that time, we were just like, you know, as players, we're like, man, we got to buckle down because this is embarrassing. You know, we the University of Maryland. Two years ago, they just won a national championship. The year before that, they made it. They made back to back repeats of the Final Four. So now we out here playing terrible as a state team. You know, we just look bad. So, I mean, as us as players, we put it together and we managed to put together a string of wins, man, where we took out the top. I want to say three of the top ten teams in the country during that win streak. And we ended up running like seven or eight straight. And that put us as like the hottest team at that time in college basketball going into the ACC tournament. And that kind of built us our run to even make the tournament for uh, March Madness, which was, you know, just a whole different experience even going there. You know, first round we played Davidson, uh, Steph Curry, when Steph Curry was a freshman. And I remember, you know, we had one of the top defenses in the country as a team. Anyway, we're top five, and we had one of the best defenders with DJ Strawberry. And so I remember going to the game, and we was just like, man, they was talking about Steph Curry this, Steph Curry that. And we were watching highlights, and we saw his picture. And, like, we used to just rate people off of how their profile pictures look. You know, it was just like, man, if you look like a bum, if you look like you should have been on the court, that's how we handled it going on the court from the beginning. We ain't had to know your name or none of that. If we just didn't like how you look, that's how we approached it. And so we saw we saw Steph Curry, and we was just like, man, he looked like a little boy. So we like, we about to get him. He a little boy. Man, Steph came out there and lit us up at 36. Mm. And I mean, and like I said, we was a great defensive team. We had some dogs on our team. And it wasn't an easy, you know, 36 at all. We was hounding him, but he did it like it was nothing as a freshman. He did it like it was nothing. And we ended up winning that game. We won that game by 10 um, and went on to the second round. And we lost the second round to Butler, um, which was a hard loss for us because we knew going into the next round of Sweet 16, we were probably going to face the defending champs, the Florida Gators, with Joe Kim Noah, I for and Corey Brewer and uh, Torian Green, yeah, they had they had the mob, and they ended up winning that year. They ended up repeating back to back. I think they had more space that year too. They did, and the thing is, you know, it's crazy. And I mean, everybody can say, like I said, high size twenty twenty. You say, what if? What could have happened? We were so focused on that Sweet Sixteen game when we saw Butler. We were just like, man, Butler. We didn't even know who Butler was. We didn't know who Davidson was. We didn't know who Butler was. But we were so focused on that Sweet Sixteen game. We're getting Florida because we felt like we was just perfectly matched up for them. And everybody was talking Florida, Florida, Florida. And we was like, nah, we're going to wax Florida by 20. That's what we were thinking the whole time and just totally forgot about the second round game against Butler. And we ended up losing that by three. And that was that was our run. That was our run. So, I mean, it was a great, you know, experience to be able to say that we went to the tournament. You know, we had a chance. I think that we had a chance to do something big that year. But, you know, we, we kind of overlooked our competition. And it ended up biting us in the ass. And that's just one thing that, you know. As young players growing up, you know, I think people got to look at that. Respect your competition. I'll never look past anybody because everybody can hoop. Names don't mean nothing. You still got to throw the ball up.
Sure, for sure. So you just briefly spoke on the talent in the ACC. So who were some of your toughest opponents during your run? And um, secondly, your uh, favorite places to play? Um, some of the toughest talent playing in uh, Maryland. Al Horford. Al Horford, he was at Florida State. Uh, that was, he had some of the most energy that I've ever, you know, seen from a player on a basketball court. Next person is probably close to him energy-wise, or I mean, it's probably better than him energy-wise, but just can match that level is probably the Greek freak right now, just with energy. And, you know I mean, it's just like he could, Al Horford could shoot a three-pointer and miss it and dunk the putback. He'll be dunking the putback before, like, you know, somebody shoot, you turn to look at the basket. He's dunking that jump. And he's back down, and he's putting up 30 points a game his senior year. Um, that was a tough matchup for me. Craig Smith, when he was at Boston College, uh, he gave me the blues my sophomore year. I ain't going to lie. He ate my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I remember I was looking at the bench for help, man. Gary was just like, man, come sit over here. I, I, I wasn't ready. <laughs> uh, he was an All-American, though. That was just, you know, getting your taste of All-American basketball. Like, premier guys was going to the NBA, draft pick, lottery picks. You know, my freshman year, I remember I had, like, a, a moment where I was, like, starstruck. We were playing North Carolina, uh, at North Carolina. And this was the team that went undefeated that year. I think ended up playing Illinois. With Darren Williams and Luther Head in them that year, they had Carolina had Marvin Williams coming off the bench, uh, Sean May, Raymond Felton, Rashad McCants. Like they had an NBA squad in college. It was ridiculous uh, that they had. And I remember walking on the court and Sean May was coming down the court. We were just coming out of timeout and they was talking about who they got. Sean May looked at me and was like, I got him. He was telling Raymond Felton, I got him. And I'm looking like, damn, Sean May just said, you know, this Sean May coming at me. And I remember playing on college 2K hoops. You know, I'm playing with Carolina. I'm like, you know, JG, snap out of it. You in the game right now. <laughs> You know, like, we about to hoop. And so, you know, that, that stardom thing, you know, it took over for a minute until, you know, we started running up and down. I think I got a dunk or something early on, and I just started feeling comfortable. And that's when I started feeling a part of the whole thing. But, I mean, competition-wise, I mean, come on. ACC was night in and night out. Yeah, you had guys like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, J.J. Redick was on a tear. Him and Adam Morrison were going for the scoring title a couple years in a row. Um, Sheldon Williams was ruling the paint. Uh, Chris Paul was at Wake Forest with Justin Gray. Uh, you had Jared Jack at, uh, at Georgia Tech. Yeah. yeah, like you had you oh. had night in and night out. Night in and night out. You couldn't. There was not a night that you went out to play and thought you was gonna have it off. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was it was competition every night. And I mean, I love playing at Maryland. Like you know, it was just you could Duke. You had the Cameron Indoor. You had the Cameron Crazies. Cool. I was fun playing there. But, I mean, we won. Gary, I think Gary went down as a coach that had the most wins against Coach K and Duke. Any coach in, in college basketball. Y'all can look that up if I'm wrong. But I think that's we, – we got the most wins when I was there at Duke. Um, you played – Georgia Tech had a good cheering section. They had a fan section that would sit right behind the bench, and they would dress up just like Gary Williams. Had a gray suit, a salt and pepper wig. And, like, every time Gary would be on the bench snapping or whatever, talking to, them, to the refs and everything, the crowd behind him, the fan section behind him would do the exact same thing. And they all got on – like twins. They're like Gary twins. And it would be like a, a thousand of them. It would be hilarious. Um, but, I mean, you had the different gyms. But Maryland, everybody know Comcast Center was rocking. And, I mean, Colfer House in the beginning, but Comcast Center – you know, now I think it's the Xfinity Center. It's, it's, you know, Maryland campus. Everybody know coming to Maryland, you had a game. You had to come focus. Our fans was ruthless. Our fans was ratchet. Yeah, it's a jungle. So, I mean, I love playing at Maryland. 18,000 every night, man. It was sold out. Like, that's not everybody good to say that. For sure. So what would you describe as your most memorable moment while playing for the Terps? If you could choose one. Um... 
it's a toss-up between my first win in Cameron Indoor as a freshman. Because um, I remember we beat Duke at Duke, and we drove back. Uh, or we took a plane back that night. It was like an 8 o'clock game, so we got back like around 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they was riding Route 1. They was tearing Route 1 up. After we got that, after we got that uh, win, so that was and it was you know helicopter. You come out of BWI helicopters and everything, following the bus back and everything. It was crazy. Um, that between that and beating North Carolina my senior year uh, at Carolina and the Dean Dome, they was seventeen and zero. They was number one in the country, and uh, we went down there and handled Tyler Hansborough, and uh, we got them out of there on their on their home court. Twenty five thousand Dean Dome was twenty five thousand powder blue, like it was crazy. So between those two memories, probably like my best, you know, something that I remember the most. Yeah, those was two big time wins. So Showtime just released a documentary called Basketball County. It's in the water, which chronicles PG County, Maryland, and how it became a breeding ground for top basketball players. What's your take on PG County basketball being that you're from out of that area? Oh, man. You know, it's everybody looks at it, I guess, because it got released as just PG County. But it's really like, you know, this area as a whole. You know, a lot of guys that live in PG County or live in D.C. or live in Maryland, different parts of Maryland or Virginia, you know, all have family in PG or all have family in different parts of this area, you know, or even Baltimore included. You know, you have – so at one point you could be living in Bowie. Another point you could be living in Anacostia. Another point you could be living in Fairfax. Who knows? You got, got a grandma or aunt somewhere. So, I mean, everybody's so close-knit connected in this area. But just in general, the documentary just highlighted, you know, the amount of talent that comes out of this area. You know, and it's just, it's it's the new age talent that they have now. But I mean, it's been going on for years. They're coming out of here. It's been coming on for years. This ain't nothing new. But I mean, it's just kind of putting everybody. It's, it's just putting everybody. You know, it's hipping everybody to game. It's hipping everybody that you know. We got the top talent in the area, and I'm not saying PG County specifically. I'm saying this area. I'm saying D.C., Maryland, Virginia, this East Coast side. I think that you know, for the past. 20, 30 plus years, we've held it down when it comes to producing, you know, stars, when it comes to producing all Americans, when it comes to producing, you know, top level basketball. We got it. We got it. And this 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 documentary did a good job on highlighting a piece of it. You know, I think they did a good job of talking about Curtis Malone and his contributions, you know, to the, the basketball community in the area. You know, he's a really big part of that. And the kids, you know, that, that grew up and came out, you know, he was really huge to that. And it's, it's glad to have him back home, you know, shout out to him for sure. Um, so I think, I think it was good, man. I think it was good. I think it was good. Okay. So, um, let's talk to the Turk fans. Explain how your game has changed and, and evolved since the last time they seen you play at College Park. The Maryland Turk fans is wondering if they are. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, 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 Anything that's changed about me up until this point, you know, from when I played in, in college and high school and stuff like that, from what you guys remember me of, it's just my knowledge of the game and the experience that I had. You know, playing at Maryland, I was just such raw talent. You know, I wasn't really, you know, talented in anything specific. I was just an athlete. I'd go out there, I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to run, I wanted to jump, I wanted to block stuff, get still, make the crowd go crazy. You know, that was my thing. And now I just grew to learn the game, you know, and love the game for what it is, you know, understanding it watching tape, you know, understanding how I can get better and how I can make my teammates better. That's just something that has really opened up in me when it comes to basketball since I've left Maryland, is understanding the game, how to win, understanding how I win and what it takes to win is, 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 is what I've learned over the years. For sure. So 
Uh, speak to us about your experience being drafted into the NBA and then playing on the Spurs summer league team. Yeah. Um, the draft process, man, this was, it was intense. The draft process was crazy. You know, I got, uh, I went through about 18 workouts, 19 workouts. Uh, and I think the last workout I ended up playing, I did two workouts with Boston the night before the draft. They called me back for the second workout. Uh, Lee George Hill, Mario Chalmers, and I think J.R. Giddens. They ended up picking J.R. Giddens, um, first pick in the second round, or last pick in the first round. Last pick in the first round. Um, but just that process, man, was just intense. It got to some points where you didn't even realize what state you was in because you was traveling. You work out and you on the plane headed to the next state. And I mean, that's kind of how it is during the NBA season and during the, during the season in general because you, you hit the ground, you play, and you off to the next game, you off to the next state, you off to the next team. Um, so that process itself was, you know, it was intense, but I enjoyed it, you know, working out, getting to go up against the top, you know, competition in the draft that year uh, was huge and understanding the process and what it takes, you know, in order to put yourself on a, on a you know, to separate yourself from everybody else. Because it's, it's, it's hundreds of guys working out. These teams got a, a white board, erase board, with all kind, of teams, all kind of names on there of all the players that they have. And it's probably 10 names for every position. And maybe more. It might be 20 names, you know, that they have that they want to look at. And, you know, you trying to make yourself the one person that they want. Because they might only got one pick. They might only got two picks. They might not have no picks. You never know. You know, but the whole point is to make yourself stand out so that the team remembers you. And, you know, that was one of the most, I guess, gut-wrenching things about waiting on draft night and having so many workouts is which team did I impress the most, you know? Um, in my impression, it was Toronto. I had the impression I was going to be in Toronto. Uh, after speaking with my agent and with the team, you know, they really liked the workout that I had put forward. And so I was really looking forward to Toronto calling my name that night. And I think they drafted Jonas Valanciunas if I'm – Correct. I don't know for sure. I think it was Jonas Valanciunas, but either way, it wasn't me. And I was like, man, what? I was like, damn, they used the pick. And I knew they had one more in the second round, but I was just like, you know, it's a lot of teams that got a pick between now and then. So, you know, I was thinking Toronto, and they was telling me it was the first round pick. So, I mean, they got, as soon as they made the pick, my agent got a call, and he was like, um, you know, Toronto wants you to go undrafted. They said they got a spot for you. They want you to go undrafted. And it was like, man, that wasn't the deal. The deal was I want my name called on draft night. I want to get called. You know, I want to walk across the stage. I want to, you know, I want to hear my name called. You know, that was a big thing. But saying that and not knowing, you know, and to kids and anybody that's listening that's interested in getting drafted and going through that process and stuff like this, you know, it – it's not a bad thing getting drafted, but it's not a bad thing getting undrafted either. Because if you go undrafted, you, also, you have a chance to choose a team that you want to work out for or choose a team that you want to play for. When you get drafted, a team specifically owns your right. Therefore, you cannot be touched by any other team. And so whatever a team feels like doing what you want they draft you, that's on them. You have to wait. And so that was kind of my situation with San Antonio. Um, you know, after not getting uh, picked up by Toronto, it was like, damn, who's going to be, who's going to pick me up? Detroit calls. Detroit calls. And they're like, we got the 33rd pick. We want to draft you, but we want you to go overseas for one year. And I was like, hell nah. I'm trying to go to the NBA. I'm not trying to go overseas. You know, I wasn't thinking about none of that. I didn't even know anything about overseas. I just wanted to be in the NBA. I'm making my name called this. That was a deal. So I already turned down two teams now. So now I'm sitting here like, damn, um, does it look like I'm going to get drafted? You know, my dream not going to come true. Go outside, you know, I'm pissed off. I'm sitting here trying to figure out what's next, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're talking to my agent and my family start going crazy inside the house. You know, they're like, yo, San Antonio draft you. So I'm like, damn, out of all the teams I worked out for, I didn't think San Antonio was my best workout. It wasn't, you know, I, wouldn't, I know my workouts were necessarily trash, but 
I didn't, nothing stuck out of my head in San Antonio to think that they would use a pick to draft me. But, you know, coming to find out, you know, San Antonio doesn't make mistakes when they draft, I guess. Popping them know what they're doing when they're looking at players um, and why they're looking at players, you know. So there was a reason as to why he drafted me. Um, it was also a reason as to why I didn't stick there, you know, and manage to finish my career there. You know, whatever that may be, I don't know. Maybe one day I could pick Coach Popovich's brain about that. Um, but just in general, you know, that was the decision. They picked me. I was excited because I was able to come to an organization that was known for winning. You know, that was just what they do. They win. They, they had Tim Duncan, David Robinson, you know, all the guys that have ever came through there. You know, traditionally it was just huge. So to be able to go down there and be a part of something like that, especially after coming out of a program like Maryland and a coach like Gary Williams, it, it, it felt good to me. It was something that I felt like I could just learn a lot from. And I did. I picked up a lot through Popovich and through, Gary, uh, through uh, Tim Duncan and, and Mono. Those guys, you know, really taught me a lot. And Mike Finley, when I was there as a rookie, Mike Finley was there and Theo Ratliff and Antonio McDyess. And I, I was able to pick up on a lot from those guys. Uh, they really helped me out. So, I mean, it was a, you know, a dream come true in some way, hearing a name call, getting drafted, being able to play and, and work out with these guys on a daily basis and even step on the floor at San Antonio on an NBA court with Yao Ming, you know, or LeBron James or Carmelo play, like step on the court at the same time with those guys. That's, it's surreal, you know. But again, you know, when you are working out, you're doing these and you're putting the work in every day, the game gives back to you. It gives back to you and you deserve to be there if you're there. We appreciate that insight, James. Well, um, so you briefly alluded to it. You've had a pretty successful and lucrative career overseas. Uh, talk to the listenership about the places you have played professionally and which situations were your favorite. All right. Um, so after I got drafted by San Antonio, um, my first year, did the summer league thing and everything. Uh, finished up. We're getting ready for a training camp. And uh, Popovich gives me a call and it's like, you know, we want to talk to you about going overseas this year. You know, there's a lot of guys on the team right now, a lot of bigs. We got about seven, eight bigs right now. And we're trying to figure out where we can put you and we want you to play. But, you know, we don't see a lot of minutes here right now. And that's really what it was. It was a numbers game. And so he was like, we want you to go overseas for a year. You know, go to Italy. They ended up finding a situation for me in Italy. Italy was cool. It was a team called Biella. Angelico Biella was about 45 minutes to an hour from Milan. It was in northern Italy. But it was really cool. I enjoyed it. Um... Played with uh, Jonas Jarebko, who was in the league for about 10 years. Uh, he was there. That was the year before he got drafted to Detroit. He was there. Uh, Reese Gaines, who played at Louisville, he was there. Um, we ended up signing a kid, Greg Bruner, who was at Iowa that, uh, before. Um, so, I mean, we had, a, we had a good team. We had some Italians. We had a good group of Americans. Dude named Joe Smith from Alabama um, was really big for us. Uh, it, it was a good team, a good first year for me, you know, going overseas and, you know, understanding how that goes. San Antonio wanted me to play, but they also wanted me to learn basketball, and that's something that you can do in Europe. They teach basketball for sure. They teach fundamentals, and they teach how basketball should be played. You know, in the NBA and in America, you know, you have exciting basketball. Do not get me wrong. I'm American. You know, I love it. I love to hoop in the summertime. I love to get down and, and grind one-on-ones. You know, we throw it up, and you get out there. You get your competitions you know it gets it gets testy in the states but you know it's not so much team basketball oriented you got your superstars you got your stars that's going to take 20 30 shots a game and you got your courses that's going to put the work in and block shots and rebounds for you but you not like that in europe in europe you don't have one or two guys taking 20 and 30 shots it's not enough possessions for one and it's just you know every possession is 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 significant because, it's, like I said, it's not enough possession. So you can't come down and just shoot Aaron shots early in transition like you would in the NBA. Or like Steph Curry, which is exciting, coming over half-court jacking them. Jones. So Steph would be on the bench so fast in Europe 
for doing that if he missed, you know, the first two because that could cost him the game. Yeah, he might get hot later in the game, but them first two, three could have you down 20 in two minutes in Europe. You know, but you learn down those, you learn those things through basketball and through those things in the States, you know, they you guys are more athletically gifted. They're stronger, they're faster, they jump higher, you know, a lot of the things they do, but they don't necessarily teach the the fundamental the basic fundamental skills of basketball. A lot of trainers nowadays are teaching, you know, first thing to do is put the ball on the ground and dribbling and all kind of cone moves and all kind of drill things going to the basket and crazy finishes. Like, nah, teach basketball first. The rest of that stuff come later. You know, when you're a superstar and they want to see you put uh, people in the seats and bring money into the arena, that's when you start focusing on stuff. But actual basketball and how the game is supposed to be played, you learn that more in Europe than you do in the States, man. And it's sad. It's sad, but it's true. And that's one of the things that I picked up on, and that's one of the things that Popovich wanted me to pick up on in, in sending me to Europe. So, I mean, I learned playing in Italy. After that, I ended up going to Russia. After that, I went to Serbia, uh, Turkey, Spain, and I ended up sticking in Greece for seven years. I played my last season in Serbia, you know, so, it, it, it you know, I bounced around, and that was a little bit of a, I want to say, a red flag. Because it was like, why are you bouncing around so much? Why, why are you, why can't you stick in one country? Why can't you stick with one team? And then for me, it was because I keep getting paid more. They keep giving me a new contract. I'm bouncing. I'm out. That, that's all it was for me. It wasn't that I, I couldn't stick. It wasn't that I wasn't a good player. It wasn't that I wasn't good for the locker room or nothing like that. It was just I keep getting a new contract. That's why I'm out. So when I was able to stay in Greece for as long as I did, you know, it showed that I could be a staple to a team. I could be a t somebody that could help a team win. Somebody that. I guess management feels that I'm a huge part of the team. I got to stick. I, they got to build a team around me and, and another player. That was something that I picked up just in my career, you know, in Europe. And it took a while, but, I mean, I got on the train, man. I got on it and learned. So you've won multiple championships in Euro Leagues. Is there any uh, particular one that's your favorite? I didn't actually win a Euro League title. Euro League is a separate competition from the uh, different leagues in Europe. Now, um... EuroLeague is like, uh, it's a tournament, you know, it's like the NCAA tournament, I guess. Now, this the past couple of years, they changed it up to round robin where everybody plays everybody, but it used to be group phase. Um, but EuroLeague is a separate competition as opposed to what you have in your domestic league or in your country. Like if you play in Spain, you have a, a first division, you have a second division and a third division. They play their games, you know, whatever it may be. And then those teams in Spain, you have your top team, your top two or three teams in Spain that play in the EuroLeague. And then you have your top two or three teams in Germany that play in the EuroLeague, the top two teams in Greece that play in the EuroLeague. But it's, the EuroLeague is separate from that. I didn't win a EuroLeague championship. I won a lot of European titles. I did win a lot of European titles in the countries I played in, but the EuroLeague specific, I didn't win. I made it to the playoffs several years. I fell short um, two or three times in the game five to go to the Final Four, but I never advanced to, to get a championship, um, which is still a goal of mine. I'm still in the I'm still in my career. I still got a few years left, and I still got some gas in the tank, so I'm still making that push to get a yearly championship. But um, through the titles that I have won, one of the most memorable ones was when I was playing in Greece uh, for my team, Panathinaikos, and uh, we ended up losing to Barcelona in the yearly playoffs. Lost the yearly, uh, lost to Barcelona in the yearly playoffs, game five, and uh, that was our chance. Uh, that was, I think, my year to win a yearly if I was going to win one. That was one of them. Um, lost that, and so we go back to Greece. You know, we waiting on the Greek League playoffs to start so we can finish up our season. Um, the team that ends up winning the EuroLeague is our rival in Greece. Um, they ended up winning the whole EuroLeague that year. They went to the Final Four. You know, all the fans were pissed off, and man, everybody like, man, we don't want them to win. They're going to win the EuroLeague, and then we got to play them and all this shit. And in my mind, I was like, cool, let them win. I want them to win because we got to play them in the championship here. 
And if we and we're gonna wear them out, we gonna we knew that from the season because we had played them two or three times during the year. And win or lose, we knew that we had their number, and we knew that when we played in the finals, that there was no way they was gonna win the championship. So I was excited about that whole series and everything that was going on. Um, and we ended up winning. They won the EuroLeague, and we came back to Greece, and it was a five-game series, and we swept them 3-0. And they had home court advantage. We didn't even have home court advantage, so we went in there and took it. That's what made it better. Um, and, I mean, just the rivalry that runs behind that game is like, I don't know, Redskins, Cowboys, or Duke, Maryland. You know, the fans are really into it, but it's like, I mean, it really could be like on a level like gang violence, like Bloods and Crips. Like, they really be fighting and go head over heels over that stuff. People die over those games. They, they, they miss birthday parties and stuff just to watch that game. And so for us to win that game like we did and to win the championship like we did and kind of have the bragging rights of that country, for them, it was huge. For me, it was like, yeah, you know, it was another chip on the board. Um, but it was one of the probably most memorable ones that I've had. For sure. So uh, final question before we let you go. Um, so take us through now, like uh, with the pandemic and everything, what's your next moves? And uh, obviously you talked about coaching in your post career. Talk to us about that as far as uh, uh, taking steps to attain that goal. Yeah, uh, when I'm finished, man, I want to play. I want to I still want to coach basketball. You know, uh, one thing that uh, has stuck with me since I left Maryland was Gary teaching me how to watch video and becoming a student of the game, you know, and it, it's that's grown on me ever since I left there because it's everybody, not everybody, you, you learn as you get older and through professional that not everybody likes basketball. Not everybody likes, they, they're good at it, but they don't like it. They won't watch it. They don't care for it. They like the lifestyle, but they don't like the work or they like the, you know, everything that comes with it, but they don't like you know, they just don't have a passion for it. And, I, and people like that, players like that, I don't, they don't sit well with me. I, I'm allergic to people like that because I want to win. And, like, I, I study it and I read, I watch tape, I watch defenses, I watch everything, you know. And so I'm aware during the game of what I'm looking for and things like that. So the fact that I can just dissect a game like I can, I want to be able to teach that to somebody. I want to teach that and give that out to somebody else, and I want to teach it at a high level. One day I want to be a head coach, and I want to win at a high level, a championship at a high level. So that's, that's like the in-game aspiration for me. And so right now I'm just trying to put myself in position to be able to transition into that once my career is done. And one thing that's helped is the coronavirus thing, unfortunately. You know, being forced to be on quarantine and being home and stopping the season and not having nothing to do, it kind of put me in a position where it was like, you know, damn, I'm at home. I'm sitting still. I don't got nothing to do. I ain't got no practice. You know, basically like retirement. I'm not trying to be like that, you know, and not have nothing to do. So I started thinking like, man, I need to start preparing myself and start putting myself in a position so that when I do finish, I can make a smooth transition if I want to. I don't have to like sit there and start scrambling and start figuring out what else, what's next, you know. Just kind of start having have a game plan already. So that's just my thing. I think the biggest thing right now is trying to figure out what level I want to coach at. If I want to be at the professional level, let's say NBA, or if I want to do college, you know, high level college, something like that. You know, that's for me, that's kind of where I'm at right now. James, we appreciate you coming on with us today and all the insight that you gave us. Um, hopefully you can get back when this pandemic is over, continue your career, and um, have a good one. Most definitely, man. I appreciate y'all having me on the show. You know, definitely. Uh, everybody be safe out here. Like you said, this pandemic going crazy. You know, all the situation with the whole George Floyd thing going on. You know, everybody got to be safe out here these days, man. The world is crazy right now. So definitely appreciate y'all having me, man. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Yep. All right. Brand activations, business openings, 
recently engaged or in any life event that deserves a celebration? Start planning with Penn Jones Events. Owner and principal planner Paige guarantees a fun and stress-free planning experience. Managing every event aspect, including budgets, timelines, vendor negotiations, event design, and more. Penn Jones Events is a full-service wedding and event planning company based in Maryland. We curate extraordinary events tailored to you. Let's start planning today. For a free 30-minute consultation, visit ppjevents.com. This ad is right. brought to you by Lavelle Body. Lavelle Body is an all-natural, handmade skin and hair care line for men, women, and children. So if your skin is dry, your hair is damaged, or your beard is having problems connecting, shop Lavelle Body today at LavelleBody.com or DM Lavelle Body LLC on Instagram. Again, that's LavelleBody.com or DM Lavelle Body LLC. We are back. That wraps up another one. Appreciate James for giving us all that insight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Another another great episode. Church weeks, you know, coming to an end, unfortunately. But I, I think we all had a, a great time listening to this insight. Yeah, man. Um, I, I, what I take from church week is just what a coach Gary Williams was. And um, just listening to Dino's insight on Gary, James's insight today, um, even Coach's uh, Bino's insight on Thursday. Um, just a true Hall of Fame coach in every right. Um, the falling asleep at Comcast. You know, people say a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah, they do X, Y, Z. But when your players confirm that, man, it's just it's, it's a testament not only to Coach Williams but to all the players in the program in itself. So. Turf's week was fun, man. I, I really enjoyed this weekend. That's a fact. Definitely, definitely. As advertised, it was great. So tomorrow, be with Greg Barnett, right, Keith? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Coach Barnett will be on tomorrow, um, NFL contracting agent. So that should be an interesting discussion. So make sure to catch all Turf's weeks, every streaming platform. Stay safe. Stay blessed. We'll highlight y'all tomorrow.